0: You can't spend much time in the Bible without coming across different names for God. Lots of names. Now, some of those names are pretty obvious, but some of them are kind of confusing, at least to modern minds. Well, here's our promise. If you'll hang out with us today, you'll finally understand what some of those names mean. Plus, you'll find yourself more in love with the Lord. It's true. Hey, welcome to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio, our host is the widely read and widely traveled Dr. Charlie Dyer. How's your day going, Charlie? John, it's going really well, so thank you so much. Well, I'm just sitting here thinking that uh, most Jewish people have never heard the gospel. And every week we talk about Israel and the
1: Jewish people, but it's important to remember that they, like everyone else, need to hear the good news. That's right, John. And that's why Life in Messiah, which is a ministry in existence for over 130 years, is devoted to sharing the gospel with Jewish people around the world. We've interviewed several Life in Messiah staff on our show, and we've enjoyed hearing what God is doing around the world through them. Well, Now Life in Messiah is offering a free gift to Moody listeners. It's a resource called Reaching Jewish People for Messiah. Receiving your free gift is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. When you do, you'll receive this free ebook, which highlights the need for the gospel among the Jewish people, and will equip you with practical ways to share the good news with them.
0: Well, let's get into this week's current event stories. Uh, Israel's government seems to be hanging on, maybe only by a thread, though, as it teeters from one coalition crisis to another. What are the latest problems facing the coalition, and realistically,
1: how much longer can it survive? Yeah, the the key problem right now is the coalition is so broad that its members are often on opposite sides of key political issues. Uh, They can't find common ground, and lacking a solid majority in the Knesset, the prime minister has little clout in forcing rebellious party members to toe the line. Uh, The most recent crisis erupted over the failure to pass a bill that continues to extend civilian law to Israelis living in the West Bank, and that's about half a million Israelis it's been passed every five years since the 1967 Six-Day War, and it grants Israelis living in those settlements full rights as citizens in terms of paying taxes and being part of the health system and having access to the legal system. Uh, Several members of the coalition voted against the bill. Hmm. Opposition parties favor the legislation, but they've said they won't support any legislation sponsored by the coalition. Uh, They're doing that to try and bring down the government. Justice Minister Gideon Saar said the coalition will not survive if the bill fails, and yet it failed anyway, at least in this most recent vote this past week. Uh, There were reports that he was in secret negotiations with Netanyahu over forming an alternative coalition, but Saar denied those reports as fake news. The conservative members of the current coalition are in a difficult position. They were elected by pledging not to join any coalition with Netanyahu, But at the same time, their supporters are strongly right-wing, so do the leaders break their pledge not to join with Netanyahu, or do they break their pledge to support their party's fundamental beliefs? If the government topples, it's very possible they won't get re-elected. But it's not just legislative issues that are making the government appear so shaky. In the past three weeks, four major aides and advisors to Prime Minister Naftali Bennett have resigned suggesting an office that's in disarray. Hmm. In a recent poll, most Israeli voters believe the government will collapse within six months. In that same poll, more Israelis support Netanyahu for prime minister than any other candidate. Uh, Right now, the opposition doesn't have the necessary votes to topple the government. But at the same time, the government doesn't have the necessary votes to rule effectively. And that's what's leading to legislative paralysis if the conservative members of the coalition lose confidence in its ability to govern, they could feel compelled to defect and join the opposition. And that's what Netanyahu and his allies are hoping will happen in the not-too-distant future. Well, the Jewish festival of Shavuot took place this past Sunday and Monday. How's the festival celebrated in Jerusalem? Yeah, Shavuot, which we know as the Feast of Pentecost, was one of the three festivals for which God commanded all Jewish people to appear before him. Obviously, that doesn't happen today, but certain elements do characterize the holiday. Traditionally, Shavuot is said to commemorate the day God provided the Torah to Israel at Mount Sinai. It also commemorates the beginning of the summer harvest season. In fact, it coincides with the start of the wheat harvest, uh, at least uh, on the calendar. Uh, This past week, Israel celebrated by eating dairy products and reading from the Torah, along with the book of Ruth, and visiting the Western Wall. John, from chowing down on cheesesteak and delicious baked goods to (laughs) attending parties and music festivals and other family-friendly events, modern Israel celebrated the two days of Shavuot in style.
0: Well, you're listening to The Land and the Book. If you've joined us midstream, our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, Frequent Traveler to Israel, I'm John Geiger, and we're looking at stories that have been unfolding all this week throughout the Middle East. Story number three, though, the cable car that wouldn't die. (laughs) That might sound like a title for a horror movie, but in this case, it's a description of the Jerusalem cable car project that keeps
1: on clawing its way back to life. What is the latest on this project, Charlie? Oh, John, the opponents of the project lost their bid to kill it when a three-judge panel of Israel's Supreme Court issued a unanimous ruling against them. The court rejected four petitions against the project and instead ruled that the government's approval of the plan back in 2019 followed proper procedures and reached its decision based on relevant facts. Now, this still doesn't mean the cable car will actually be built. The battle now moves from the legal challenges to the court of public opinion. Uh, Those in favor of the project believe it will relieve traffic congestion around the Old City by transporting up to 3,000 visitors an hour from West Jerusalem to the area just outside the Western Wall. Those opposed to the project offer a variety of arguments against it. the Political, practical, and aesthetic. Politically, they're at least charging some of them that Israel's planning to further Judaize Jerusalem. And now that argument gets trotted out to oppose anything Israel does the cable car neither makes the city more or less Jewish, any more than the cable car that takes visitors from uh, Jericho, say, up to the Mount of Temptation, makes Jericho more or less Arab. That particular argument, it just doesn't wash. Now, the practical argument is that the cable car won't alleviate traffic. It'll just move the traffic problem from the Dung Gate to the old train station in West Jerusalem. And to me, this could be a valid argument, which needs to be studied more fully. Ancient Pergamum in Turkey installed a cable car system to take tourists up to the Acropolis. The system did alleviate bus traffic and parking issues that had previously been there on the summit. Now, could a cable car in Jerusalem accomplish that same thing? That's the issue that needs to be explored. The aesthetic question, though, is also one that needs to be addressed. Will the system become a gigantic eyesore, or will it blend into the surroundings in a way that eventually becomes unnoticeable? Uh, Jericho's system is something of an eyesore, but the one at Pergamum is not. Uh, The impact of a system like this on the old city really needs to be evaluated carefully. Uh, I've said it before, John, I personally don't like the project, but even though the courts have ruled, I suspect the battle over it is going to continue. Uh, Let's hope they do address the real issues before deciding whether or not to move forward. Charlie, doesn't the very fact that uh,
0: this thing is still alive legally suggest that it might well have a tad more inertia than
1: we might have thought? Well, it does seem to have a life of its own, and it's part of the larger political issue of uh, what's going to happen. Again, they keep talking about tourists, but the real issue here is uh, for the bar mitzvahs that are done at the Western Wall, there's no place for the uh, people who come to park their cars. Uh, This will help them. I'm just not sure it's going to help the normal tourists but it does have some reasons and some powerful people behind it that want to push it forward. Well, we'll certainly keep our eyes on that story as it unfolds.
0: Aortic valve stenosis is a relatively common problem for older adults, but an Israeli company called Picardia is helping delay the need for valve replacement while also making the replacement process, when it is finally used, safer. Tell us about
1: these innovations out of amazing Israel. Yeah, most aortic valve replacement is now done using a procedure called TAVR, a transcatheter aortic valve replacement. But the procedure is not without potential complications, and that's where Picardia decided to focus on innovative ways to improve the process. Now, stenosis occurs when calcium builds up on the heart valve flaps. Picardia developed what they call the flex device to repair the aortic valve without replacing it by breaking up or scoring calcification along the aortic valve leaflets. Uh, The procedure restores flexibility and functionality to the valve, delaying the need for a total valve replacement. The device is currently in human clinical trials across Europe and in China. The company's also developed another device called Shortcut for individuals who've already had a valve replacement and who now need another one. In the current TAVR procedure, There are times when the leaflets of the existing valve can get trapped leading to a coronary artery obstruction that can be life-threatening. The shortcut device splits the leaflets of the previous surgical valve so the blood can flow through once the second device is put in. The shortcut device doesn't yet have regulatory approval, but it has already saved five high-risk patients in compassionate use cases in Germany and Israel. Hopefully, regulatory approval will soon follow. Two innovative products, both coming our way from Picardia in Amazing Israel, that will provide new treatment options for the growing population of people with aortic stenosis.
0: What an encouraging word. Thank you, Charlie. And that's a look at current events from the Middle East. Coming up, a conversation about knowing God by His names here on The Land and the Book. Can't spend much time in the Bible without coming across different names for God. Lots of names. Now, some of those names are obvious, at least on the surface. And when we read them on the pages of our Bible, some of them can be rather confusing, at least to modern minds. Well, here's the deal. If you stick around, we can promise you're going to find yourself saying, wow. So that's what that means. Plus, you'll love the Lord even more. Hey, this is The Land and the Book, by the way. I'm John Geiger, if we haven't met. And before we move further into this conversation about knowing God by his names, let's think about creative ideas for sharing the love of Jesus with a Jewish friend or neighbor of yours. We're honored to have such a, a wide range of listeners to The Land and the Book, and among them, pastors, these men who faithfully, weakly serve their congregation selflessly. And the thought occurs to me, it could be that there's something that pastors could uniquely be doing to equip their congregations to reach out to their Jewish friends. But let's find out if that's the case as we talk with another pastor, Dan Stroll, who leads the Olive Tree Congregation in suburban Chicago. What do you say, Dan, to pastors out there?
2: Thank you for asking the question, John. <laughs> First of all, yes, I would say absolutely. I would encourage the pastors who are listening to be faithful to preach on God's ongoing love for the Jewish people, to really make much of Genesis 12, and verses such as Jeremiah 31, 35 to 37, Romans 11, 1 through 3, that all make it very clear that God loves his Jewish people, has a plan for them, and wants them to come to faith in Jesus.
0: Sounds to me like you're suggesting we need to be very deliberate. Pastors need to just underscore this, put a yellow highlighter on these biblical passages.
2: Right. I'm constantly amazed at how many Christians I meet who, after coming to the olive tree for a period of time express amazement at how clear it is in the Scriptures about God's ongoing relationship with Israel. Yeah, so, pastors, thanks for stepping up, for bringing that
0: yellow highlighter to those Scripture passages. And thanks to Dan Strahl, who serves faithfully at Olive Tree Congregation in suburban Chicago. Appreciate your uh, insights here on The Land and the book. You're welcome. Dick Purnell is the author of 19 books on relationships, marriage, and spiritual development, including... Knowing God by His Names. He speaks throughout America and is a global representative of Crew. Hey, thanks for taking time out of your schedule to join us today on The Land and the Book, Dick.
3: Oh, thank you very much. It's great to be on your show. Well,
0: why does God need or even desire so many different names for himself? I mean, is that excessive?
3: (laughs) Well, I'll tell you what. In our culture, a name is simply identification. Uh, My name is Dick Purnell. That separates me from other people. But when it comes to God, in the Hebrew language, or even the Greek, a name meant something far different, not identification. It was a reference to a person's character or a prediction. Like, for instance, he said that Abram would be turned into Abraham. Abram means father, and Abraham means father of nations. Or like significance, when he met Simon, he said, your name is not Peter, which means the word Simon means hearing, and the word Peter means rock. So he's going to turn him, uh, prediction, into uh, a solid person. So each of God's names puts a spotlight on one of his marvelous characteristics or significant things about him.
0: So what's a name for God that has become precious to you that many of us might not think of right off the bat?
3: Well, every time I, I start praying, I call out to the Holy One of Israel. Hmm. Now, I know that the Holy One means He is perfect and pure and righteous and everything is clean. And it says, Holy One of Israel. And what caught me was in Jeremiah, after the nation was destroyed and he was taken down into Egypt. So the whole nation was no more. God still says, I am the Holy One of Israel. And it caught me that. Even though the nation had been destroyed and taken off into Babylon, he was still their God. Hmm. He was there all the time through thick and thin, through difficult times. So I thought, you know, that's what I need. I need purity in my heart, in my life. And I'm so glad that God is with me, even though I go through all kinds of crazy stuff. He's still there with me. So that name has become very, very uh, important to me.
0: Well, every name of God has special significance for the Christian. That's what we're learning today on The Land and the Book with our guest, Dick Purnell. Well, so many people, when they pray, address God as Heavenly Father. I want you to talk about the meaning of that name.
3: Well, it's very interesting. In the Old Testament, the word Father, referring to God, only appears like one or two times. Hmm. So in the Old Testament, it is not a very significant thing. But when Jesus came along and said, my father, that really blew the people's minds because they had never addressed God like that. So father has wide range of meanings. A father could be a leader. As uh, Jesus said, I do what the father tells me to do. And we also have a father who wants to guide us. He's also a disciplinarian because uh, we get out of line. You know, I have a grandson. And he runs out in the street, and I have to discipline him for running out in the street. So the Father disciplines us. He's also a a comforter. You know, when we have difficulties, we're kind of confused, we go to our Father and say, what do I do now? And so the Father is the counselor. He's the helper. And what's really, really interesting is when Jesus was in the garden, he cried out, Abba, Father. Now, we use the word Abba a lot. That's a nice word. But In the Bible, the word Abba is actually in Aramaic. The New Testament is written in Greek, but the word Abba is Aramaic. And the Aramaic word is like the word daddy, is like little children calling out to daddy. They will call Abba, Abba. So Jesus in the garden, in the deepest, deepest part of his soul, was crying out to his daddy. And he said, Abba, Father. And it appears also in Romans. It means that we too can call him Abba, Father, Daddy, I need your help. I, I need your, your guidance. You know, that's what the word Father means.
0: Let's talk about spirit of truth. There's a name for God, and I can't say, <laughs> a Dick, that I, that I ever open a word of prayer saying spirit of truth, but perhaps I should. Your thoughts?
3: Yeah, the spirit of truth is that the Holy Spirit can teach us what is right. I mean, we just go according to what we think we should do or our, you know, fleshly desires gets in there and we do things that aren't so appropriate. And if we pray, Holy Spirit, Spirit of truth, guide me into what is right. Help me not to go into the wrong paths. And so the Spirit of truth can shine a light on our life. In fact, the Holy Spirit is the convictor. That's what Jesus said. He convicts us of sin. So he could tell us, hey, this is not the right way to go Let me lead you to the right way. That's what the Spirit of Truth does.
0: Prince of Peace. You know, we we often hear that at Christmas time from Isaiah 9-6, and boy, we could use some peace in our world (laughs) as we look at all the conflict from the Middle East to what's going on Mm. in Europe to Africa to just pretty much every continent on the globe. Prince of Peace. What have we maybe not thought about when we think of that? It seems kind of on the surface pretty obvious, but your thoughts.
3: Yeah. Well, the word Prince is very interesting. Because Prince meant that he is right next to the Father. The Father is the head of everything. He is God Almighty. And the Prince of Peace means he's right there and he's bringing peace. And peace also means stability. So if we feel anxious or if we get upset about something, he is the Prince of Peace to give us stability in our life and to calm us down. We may be all upset about something, but we pray the Prince of Peace it means it calms down. It doesn't mean there's not going to be conflict. Mm -hmm. What it means is, it means there's stability and confidence and calmness in the middle of everything going upset.
0: I love it. Stability, confidence, and calmness. Yeah. Well, our God has many, many names, and we're learning the significance of just a few of them today on The Land and the Book with our guest, Dick Purnell, who has written Knowing God by His Names. The name Good Shepherd is used to address God. We no longer live in a dominantly uh, agrarian society. We're we're city dwellers. We're manufacturing folks. We're in, you know, high-tech industries. So what are we missing in this name Good Shepherd today?
3: Well, we don't understand what a shepherd is until we understand what a sheep is. I mean, a sheep is a very defenseless animal. It has no way to defend itself. And sheep also, the only thing they really want to do is to eat and sleep. That's basically what a sheep does. And so it wanders everywhere, goes wherever it thinks it's going to get some grass or whatever it's going to get, has no understanding or awareness of its surroundings. So when it says the shepherd of the sheep, the sheep are as we are. We don't know our direction. We uh, maybe are into ourselves, our self-interest or maybe we can easily wander into some things that are not good for us, or maybe even become bad or evil. And the shepherd of the sheep is not only protecting us from the outside influence, but also a guide. You know, it's very interesting. You drive cattle, but you lead sheep. Hmm. In other words, the cattle driver, he's behind, and he's driving the cattle on. But the shepherd is in front, and so the sheep follow the shepherd, wherever he is going. So he's a leader, he's a guide, he's also a protector, he brings us to the nourishment that we need in our life, and it gives us tremendous sense of peace in our hearts and know that hey, we're following the shepherd and he knows where he's going and we're going to follow him.
0: Hey, what should the variety in the many names of God communicate to us? Just the fact that there are so many.
3: I've been doing a lot of research, and in the book I give over 200 names, different names of God, hmm. And I give a passage where you can start finding it and some ideas on how to continue to study the names of God. A name of God is somewhat like a diamond ring. You know, a diamond ring is made of little tiny facets, which means face or window. And if you get real close, you can see one little facet and it looks really pretty. But when you start pulling that diamond ring away... And now you see more of those facets. The diamond ring just sparkles. It gets beautiful. Mm. So each name of God, like a little tiny face, a window into the attributes and the beauty and complexity of God. But the more names you learn and know and pray, the more beautiful your prayer life is going to be. It's going to sparkle because now what you do is God all throughout the Bible relates his name to the need of the people he was talking to. Right. Like with David, he was called the shepherd. And David said, oh, you're my good shepherd. Why? Because he needed guidance through all the wilderness and being sought out by Saul. So what you do is you link your situation or your need to the name of God that relates directly to it.
0: Dick Purnell is helping us know God by his names today on The Land and the Book. What about this Hebrew name, Elohim?
3: Well, that's a beautiful name. In fact, that's the very first name in the Bible for God. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning, God. That's the word Elohim. And now what's fascinating about that word is the word E-L is a reference to God. That's the name God. The H-I-M ending is like our letter S. I know this is kind of wild, but Elohim really is a plural Hmm. It means gods. And every time it's used in the Bible, it always has a singular verb with it. Like we say, sheep is, sheep are, sheep is singular or it's a plural. It's the word God. So it means the Trinity. I think it's a hidden reference to the triune God. Hmm. Because, like in the Tower of Babel, the Bible says that Elohim said, Let us go down and confuse their language. He says, let us. Mm-hmm. And then also, when he's making man, mankind, he said, let us make them in our own image in Genesis chapter one. Well, when he says, let us, who's he talking to? He's not talking to the angels. Angels don't create us, right. didn't make us. He's talking to the Trinity. He's talking to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have a magnificent conference, I guess, and they're talking, okay, let us, make man in our image. So the word Elohim, I think, is a latent reference to the triune God, and and it appears somewhere around uh, 2,000 times in the Old Testament. So that is rich with the beautiful trinity of God.
0: You think if, if we were to ask God his favorite name for himself, would he have one?
3: Yes. Yes, he said, at the very beginning, and when he's talking to Moses at the burning bush, he said, my name is Yahweh. That's for generations. My name is Yahweh. Well, the Jewish people didn't want to mispronounce their name because the in Ten Commandments is don't take the name of the Lord, your God, in vain. So they kind of changed the name to Jehovah. Jehovah is maybe a substitute name for Elohim. That he says basically is I love. And that name actually appears... Almost 6,000 times in the Old Testament. Wow. So Yahweh or Jehovah is his name that he uses the most often. All
0: right. Well, so much to explore, and we encourage you to dig deeper for yourself in Dick Purnell's book, Knowing God by His Names. A link to that at our website, thelandandthebook.org. No need to run away. Charlie Dyer's back to answer a fresh set of Bible questions here on The Land and the Book. The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, and in the spotlight, you. Yeah, this next segment is about your thoughts, your questions, the things that have made you kind of scratch your head, maybe as you read through Scripture. Your questions are always welcome, by the way, and our email address, the way to connect with our host Charlie Dyer, is the land and the book at moody.edu. Charlie, are you nervous? No, John, I actually love questions. (laughs) (laughs) couldn't resist asking. All right, here's one from Diana. Actually, two questions, she says. First, in the consecration of the priest to his office, he is sprinkled with blood and oil. The blood is going to stain his beautiful priestly garments so they won't look like the beautiful priestly garments we see in pictures. Were the priest's garments always blood-stained? Second, if only the high priest went into the Holy of Holies once a year, wouldn't it become awfully dirty in there, Seems like the mercy seat over the years would become very dirty and blood
1: encrusted. Yeah, you know, I, I love those kind of questions, John. Uh, and uh, I'd start by saying this it's likely only a small amount of blood and oil were sprinkled on the priests as they were consecrated to their office. But even if it's just a small amount, that would produce stains. So I assume the garments were not as pristine as they appear in most artists' renderings. And the process of sacrificing animals and offering them on a burning altar would have produced stains from blood and soot as well. So garments could be washed, but there would still be some stains. In the same way, the Ark of the Covenant would become stained with blood being sprinkled on it during the Day of Atonement, and I also assumed the smoke from the incense that was offered in the holy place and then also in the Holy of Holies during the Day of Atonement would have uh, ultimately produced some soot. So when the tabernacle moved through the wilderness, uh, the pieces of furniture were covered and transported, and that might have provided a small degree of cleaning or polishing, but once Solomon's temple was built, the furniture stayed in place. So, in addition to the blood on the Ark of the Covenant and the smoke from the incense, there would have also been that gradual increase in dirt and dust, especially since no one else was allowed into the Holy of Holies. Now, again, that's not shown in most artists' drawings of the Ark. Right. So, personally, though, I think that the blood stains and the dirt were a reminder that the way to God came through sacrifice, and perhaps that's a, a fitting illustration of our bruised and bloodied Savior, He went to the cross to be our great high priest, offering himself as the sacrifice for our sin. So in that sense, that sense of reality really does help point us, I think, toward Jesus. Alice wants to know if Jesus was in the grave
0: three days and nights, he could not have died on Friday. So why do we only say he was in the grave from Friday afternoon until Sunday morning?
1: I think the answer comes when we recognize that phrase, three days and three nights, is to be taken in a general sense, not a 72-hour period. In fact, Uh, Let me give you two specific scriptures I think that will help. The first is Matthew 27, 63 to 64. The chief priests went to Pilate and asked that Jesus' grave be sealed. And they said Jesus had predicted he would rise after three days. But then they asked Pilate to give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Now, had they understood Jesus' words to be a literal 72-hour period, they would have asked that the grave be sealed until the fourth day. In the same way, here's the second passage, Luke 24 When Jesus appeared to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, uh, the disciples said, you know, besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. But if Jesus had been in the tomb for 72 hours, it would have been the fourth day since the crucifixion and burial. Uh, The gospel writers were internally consistent, so it appears to me they understood that three days and nights in the sense of being a three-day period. That is, the events took place over three days, and if Jesus was crucified on Friday was in the grave all day Saturday and then rose from the dead on Sunday, that would count as the three days. Hmm. Another question here, interesting one, is the Cleopas on the
0: Emmaus Road the same person as Clopas, the husband of Mary, the sister of Jesus' mother in John 19.25? And why were two sisters both named Mary? Wouldn't it have been unusual for siblings back then to have the same first name?
1: Well, I think the most we can say about Cleopas and Clopas is that they're at least theoretically possible that they are the same individual. Now, my hesitancy, though, is I would have expected Luke to add something like the husband of Mary's sister. like He does when he introduces other characters connected to prominent individuals, especially since Luke must have interviewed Mary before writing his gospel. And in answer to the other question, siblings in a family would generally not have the same name, much like today. Well, with the exception maybe of George Foreman, the boxer, children are given different names to distinguish them. Uh, Now, one exception would be as if a mother died and the father then remarried another woman who had also been a widow. In that case, there could be possibly two children in a blended family who had been named after Moses's sister, Miriam. Here's a question from David. He says, I'm a
0: longtime listener to WKES 91.9 in Tampa Bay. And often catch your podcast, real encouraged by you and your team. Well, thank you, David. His question takes us to Second Kings 20 and Isaiah 38. Hezekiah is given a sign. The sun is to move backward. Question, was this a regional miracle or a global miracle? To my simple interpretation, it looks to be global since the day was apparently lengthened by some amount of time. If it was global, is there any other evidence, whether in scriptures or in secular writings, of this major event? Similarly, in Joshua 10, 12 through 13, the sun stopped in the middle of the day and delayed going down about a full day. Was this also a regional or a global miracle? Your insight is greatly appreciated, Charlie.
1: Yeah, well, I have to start with the assumption that the miracles, both in the time of Joshua and Hezekiah, were global and not just local. But I don't know of any confirmation of that in other cultures. Of course, the amount of uh, written material from all those cultures is quite limited, so perhaps there will be confirmation in some future archaeological discovery, but there isn't any right now that I know of. Uh, in terms of the specific miraculous sign mentioned by the Babylonians in Second Chronicles 32:30, it's possible that they were referring to this celestial sign, but it's also possible they were referring to the miraculous destruction of 185,000 Assyrian soldiers by the angel of the Lord, which forced Sennacherib to break off his siege and allowed Hezekiah to remain on the throne. 2 Chronicles 20.12 connects the visit of the king of Babylon with Hezekiah's illness and recovery, but it also says in 20 verse 1 that Hezekiah's illness took place in those days. That is, referring back to the attack and destruction of the army of Assyria in chapters 18 and 19. Uh, Since both the attack by and miraculous destruction of that Assyrian army Hezekiah's illness and the celestial signs connected with his healing all occurred about the same time, it's really hard to distinguish which event triggered the visit by the king of Babylon. Interesting question here from
0: Ken. What actually are the locusts from the bottomless pit mentioned in Revelation chapter 9? If they are demons, why are they in the pit and not loose like the other demons? The king of the locusts is called the angel of the bottomless pit, whom I presume is a fallen angel. And then in Revelation 17, John says the beast, Antichrist, shall ascend out of the bottomless pit. So, are the king of the locusts and the Antichrist one and the same? If so, doesn't this mean the Antichrist is
1: non-human? Well, we can't be too dogmatic on the details in that particular part of the book of Revelation, but I do believe the locusts in Revelation 9 are demons. And I say that because their description doesn't match any living human or animal, and because they're said to come from the abyss. Well, Back in Luke chapter 8, the demons who inhabited the man begged Jesus not to send them into the abyss, so he sent them into a herd of swine, which suggests the abyss is some sort of prison or place of confinement for demons who've been especially wicked. Now, I associate that place and the demons who are there with Jude 6. Jude describes a place of darkness and bondage in which angels who didn't keep their own domain are imprisoned. Now, we're not told what those particular demons did to become confined, but some suggest it might be a reference to Genesis 6, where the sons of God cohabited with the daughters of men to produce the Nephilim or the giants. Whatever the action of these demons, though, it was so evil, God placed them in judgment in the abyss, and it was a place that demons in Jesus' day certainly begged him not to send them. Now, in answer to the other part of your question, I believe the angel of the abyss in charge of these demons is Satan and not the Antichrist. Uh, The text doesn't actually say Satan controls the abyss, but the key to the abyss was given to him, whether by God or some other angel, we're not told. So Satan's fallen to earth from heaven. Someday he's going to be confined to that abyss, Revelation 20 tells us. But for that one moment in time, he's allowed to release those demons who are then going to cause even greater destruction on the earth.
0: Well, here's a question for our listeners, Charlie. Did you know that most Jewish people have never heard the gospel? Each week, we talk about Israel and the Jewish people, and it's important to remember that they, like everyone
1: else, need to hear the good news. Yeah, John, and that's why Life and Messiah, a ministry in existence for over 130 years, is devoted to sharing the gospel with Jewish people around the world. We've interviewed several Life and Messiah staff on our show, and we've enjoyed hearing what God's doing around the world through them. Now, Life and Messiah is offering a free gift to Moody listeners. It's a resource called Reaching Jewish People for Messiah. Receiving your free gift is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. When you do, you'll receive this free ebook, which highlights the need for the gospel among the Jewish people and will equip you with practical ways to share the good news with them.
0: You know, as we've listened to today's questions, Charlie, I'm intrigued with the number of people who listen, not just on the radio, but many of them to our podcast. You can enjoy it yourself and share us with a friend. It's at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Charlie's devotional is next. Of all the places you visit when you take a tour to Israel, Caesarea has to be among the most magnificent. John Geiger here on this fourth segment of The Land and the Book, and Charlie Dyer is about to take us there in his devotional coming up. But before we jump into the Mediterranean, would you say you and I pause and look at the, the nation of Israel as a whole and the impact it has on people who go there to the eyes of a couple of people who would like to share their Holy Land experiences with us right now?
3: My name is Monica Cameron and um, coming to the Holy Land has changed my outlook and reading the Bible. It has brought to life a lot of the stories that I've read and now when I go back and read those stories, it
2: will be more meaningful to me. Hi, I'm Sylvia Powell from Tennessee and before I came, I asked God to change me. It began the very first night as I began to understand the area and how the distance and where things happened in the Bible and now to understand the where I've always been in tune with who and what now I know the where and that is changing the way I read the Bible I'm Mike from Alabama I want to thank you Charlie for opening our eyes as we've seen the land we all have read read the book But to see the land and hear you talk about the book is amazing. And I would encourage anybody to come. I'm coming back. Well, you get the idea
0: that a trip to Israel is extraordinarily meaningful on lots of different levels, and it is. Well, speaking of being in Israel, that's exactly where Charlie Dyer is as we catch up with him for today's devotional about Gentile believers. Now, he's projecting just a little bit because where he is is right on the shores of the Mediterranean. The ocean sounds are a little bit loud in his earphones, so Charlie's projecting a bit as he shares with us about Gentile
1: believers. Most of us enjoy things that are new. For some, it's a new car. For others, it's the latest gadget. Now of all the places we visit in Israel, the one that comes closest to capturing the thrill of something new is Caesarea by the sea. Now for many travelers to Israel, it's their first stop on a new adventure. And the thrill of sitting in a restored theater and seeing the royal box where Herod the Great once sat is almost overwhelming. And so is walking through Herod's palace next to the Mediterranean Sea. Visitors can almost picture Herod and his entourage lounging around the freshwater pool, jutting out into the sea, listening to the surf breaking against the shore. In fact, it's hard to pull travelers away from this first new stop in Israel, even though there's more to see. But the city's sense of newness extends beyond just the tourists. In studying the history of the city, you realize that its very existence exudes newness. After all, Herod the Great built the city almost entirely from scratch. The seaport of Judea was Joppa, about 30 miles to the south as the crow flies, and more like 36 miles following the roads of the day. But Joppa was a Jewish town, and Herod didn't trust the subjects he ruled. He needed a more dependable lifeline to the Roman Empire, and that's why he built this new port city. A sleepy village called Stratos Tower hugged the coast, but it was hardly a suitable spot for a town, let alone a major city. There was no natural harbor, no water supply, no major highway leading to it. But Herod saw all this as an opportunity, not an obstacle. No harbor? No problem. Let's build one using Roman engineering. No water? Let's build an aqueduct to bring water from Mount Carmel six miles away. No roads? Let's extend the Roman highway system to the site. And while we're at it, let's make sure the city has a grandeur that sets it apart from all others. Let's build a theater, a hippodrome a temple dedicated to Augustus Caesar, and of course, a magnificent palace for Herod. And best of all, it's all new. A city built from scratch with all the latest in Roman technology and design. Caesarea. It's a new experience for the tourists, and it's also a new experience for Herod the Great. But there's a third reason I connect Caesarea with things that are new and fresh. You see, this is the city where God did a new work among the Gentiles. But to understand what I mean, you need to visit the city after the time of Herod the Great and after the time of Jesus. Our visit begins in the house of a Roman centurion named Cornelius, and the story can be found in Acts chapter 10. Cornelius was a centurion, a commander over a hundred soldiers. He belonged to the Italian cohort, likely indicating that he and his entire unit were originally from Italy. He was a foreigner, a Gentile, stationed in one of Rome's far-flung outposts but this was hardly hazardous duty. The town was Roman built, Roman in culture, and filled with people who saw Rome as their ally. Yet Cornelius found himself staring in the other direction. It's not that he was disloyal to Rome, but somewhere in his spiritual journey, he had become a devout man who feared God. He didn't know much about the God of Israel, but he tried to show his love and devotion by helping the Jewish people and by praying continuously to their God. And then one day, about three in the afternoon, an angel appeared to Cornelius and told him to send men to Joppa, to the house of Simon the Tanner. There they would find a second man named Simon, who was also called Peter. They were to bring him back to Caesarea, and then the angel vanished. Cornelius immediately summoned two of his servants and one soldier and sent them to find Peter. Now, a modern tour bus can drive from Joppa to Caesarea in about an hour. But how long did it take these men to walk it? Well, they left at 3 p.m., and they arrived in Joppa at noon the next day, a 21-hour journey. It's likely they stopped at night to rest and paused along the way for food and water, but moving at a fast clip, it would have taken at least 10 hours of hard walking to cover that distance. After finding Peter, they stayed the remainder of the day with him, and early the next morning, Peter began the journey back to Caesarea with them, but it wasn't until the following day that they arrived at the home of Cornelius. The return trip took an additional three hours, probably reflecting the fact that they had to walk a little more slowly to accommodate Peter, who was likely older than the servants and the soldiers. Peter arrived at the house of Cornelius to discover that Cornelius was already anticipating his arrival and had gathered his relatives and close friends. After sharing the events that led him to summon Peter, Cornelius then asked Peter to share all that you've been commanded by the Lord. Peter wasted no time. He shared the good news that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah promised by the prophets of old, that he'd been crucified and rose from the dead, and that God had provided forgiveness of sins through his name. Before Peter even reached the end of his message, everyone present knew that what Peter was saying was true, and they put their faith in Jesus as their Messiah and Savior. That's when God poured out the Holy Spirit on all who heard the words. Don't miss the historical significance of that statement. Up till now, God's new work through Jesus had been limited to the Jews and the Samaritans. But for the first time since the day of Pentecost, the outpouring of God's spirit was given to Gentiles, and it happened here in Caesarea in Acts 10. Well, it's soon gonna be time to head back to the bus and continue our journey, but before we go, stand here with me on the shore of the Mediterranean and look out to the west. Out there over the horizon is Italy and Australia and the United States and all the rest of the world. For those of us who aren't Jewish, our journey of faith can ultimately be traced back to here, right to where you're standing now. Cornelius was just a Gentile, an Italian soldier who sincerely wanted to know God. And God responded by sending someone to show him how God could be found. The writer of Hebrews says that God is a rewarder of those who seek him. Cornelius found that to be true in his life And you can find the same thing to be true in your life today. Why not follow Cornelius' example by beginning an honest journey to discover the God of the Bible? If you do, I believe you'll learn that, as Cornelius did, that God is still in the business of revealing himself to those who honestly want to know him. Wow, Charlie Dyer,
0: recorded right there on the Mediterranean Ocean. Charlie, I can just see those dark blue waves and the azure sky as you were speaking there to our group. Uh, John, it makes me want to go back right now. I had such a fun time there. Me too. Well, you know, as we listen to this story about Cornelius and his example this honest journey of his attempting to discover the God of the Bible, maybe that's exactly where you are at right now. You, you're on something of a journey. You hear us talking about Jesus. You hear us talking about salvation, the cross. You hear great music, perhaps, on this station. And all of it makes you wonder, am I really headed for heaven? Am I forgiven by God? You know, you can have specific answers to those questions right now. You can be forgiven. Uh, that's the short answer to that question, you can be made right with God and you can know that you're headed for heaven. Uh, It begins with a relationship with Jesus Christ and a friend is willing to help you understand what that means. Pray with you right now at the number I'm going to give you. It's a toll-free number, 888-NEED-HIM. 888 and the numbers that spell out NEED-HIM. Nobody's going to try to sell you anything because there's nothing to buy. So there's no hype, no pressure. It's just an honest conversation, just like Cornelius trying to seek the God of the Bible at 888-NEED-HIM, 888-NEED-HIM. Our time goes too quickly here at The Land and the Book, but as always, we point you to our website where you can not only find out about today's program, past programs, future programs, but also just hear it all again. Nothing like playing it again, Sam, right? That's the landandthebook.org for all that good stuff. Thelandandthebook.org. I'm John Gager. Thanks for listening. The Land and the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.